Welcome to the Script and Style Show, the web show where we talk about web development with the people that make it happen. Today's episode is brought to you by TrackJS JavaScript Error Monitoring. Know when errors hit your website with the context to find and fix bugs fast with TrackJS. Start your free trial today at trackjs.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Script and Style. I'm Todd Gardner from TrackJS JavaScript Error Monitoring and my co-host, David Walsh, creator of the popular blog, davidwalsh.name. How's it going today, David? Dude, I'm playing injured again. I'm potting potting injured again. You know, programming is dangerous work. How did you you get injured this time? So (laughs) I'm 36 years old, and I had three soccer games on Sunday. Three. I'm not going to talk about how I scored seven goals between the three and we won all three. (laughs) But what I will say is that I was playing with an injury, not from playing sports, but from sitting at my desk. Like, I think my posture is so bad that like my neck, I can barely move my neck right now. And sometimes I can barely move my back, but again, it's not from playing sports. It's just because I'm not sitting properly. With um, that fancy chair too, you just with, the, with my fancy gaming chair. Like I'm used, to, like I used to get a lot of headaches on computers, right? Because you're, you're staring at a screen probably more hours than you should, which yep, maybe we'll yep. talk about a little bit today. But outside of headaches, do you get any computer-related injuries that you need to pod through? You know, not not that's like super bad. Like occasionally, like I'll get like like problems with my wrist and my like my hand if I'm like if I've been doing too much mouse based work or like my back will be sore or whatever, but like having the right chair, uh, doing a sit stand desk, those sort of things have been like really helpful for me. I have a standing desk. I need, you know what? After the pod, I'm going to stand. I'm going to stand today and I'll report you back totally next should. week. Hold, hold, hold on. We're going to, Oh, we're standing right now. Oh, but my camera's all fucked up now. All right. I'm going to go back. Oh, it's going to see. Well, I've got a fancy little uh, remote <laughs> that does it for me, but stand, standing is a good idea. That's a good tip for what we're talking about today. Speaking of, what are we talking about today? Well, we talked about getting your first job in the industry three or four weeks ago, and I thought it would be good to talk about now that you've got that job, what from our experience it are good things to do, bad things to do, and things to be aware of. And it partially comes up because, you know, Eric gave me a little bit of grief on our our <clears throat> episode a few weeks ago um, about me saying, you know, I was in there hour after hour after hour when we were trying to talk about work-life balance. And he said, would you do it any other way? And that made me think we need to talk about this as a main topic. That sounds great. But first, there's some there's some news we should talk about, right? Yeah, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I just think it's hilarious. So Yahoo bought Tumblr in two, uh, 2013 for $1.1 billion American dollars. Yep. I don't know how many Bitcoin that was back then, but American dollars. That's, um, a, lot of, that's a lot of dollars. That's, a, that's many dollars. Yahoo liked to throw their money around uh, four or five years ago. But, but in 2013, Tumblr was actually kind of a big deal. Tumblr was lit. I didn't have one, but I there were a lot of um, it, Tumblr always felt to me like a good one page site that you could work on and put somewhere. 
What was your impression of Tumblr? Did you have one? Did you? I, I did not have a tum- I did not have a Tumblr site, but my impression of Tumblr was it was not exactly the uh, professional side of the internet. It was more like this is where uh, you know niche topics go. This is where like people do like anime stuff. This is where cosplay players go. This is where like porn stars do their thing. This is where like all kinds of things that maybe aren't quite as normalized for uh, a professional blog or probably couldn't get away with like being on wordpress.com or something like that. They would go on Tumblr and Tumblr was this like place that like was what the internet used to be. Just like crazy stuff and people sharing their own art and people sharing their own like kinks about what they're into. And it was kind of, it was kind of fun. It's kind of interesting. You never knew what you'd find if you landed on a Tumblr site. It sounds like an evolution of something like GeoCities, which Yahoo also bought and burned <laughs> into the ground. But I find this funny <laughs> because Automatic, which is the, the parent uh, company to WordPress, just bought Tumblr for $3 million. Basically nothing. $3 million. Like what kind they just, of investment they, they, is putting $1.1 billion into something and selling off for three? That's the Yahoo way. Oh, that's terrible, bro. <laughs> I mean, Tumblr.com, just the domain is probably worth $3 million. Right. So there's probably some operating costs and stuff that Automatic is willing to take on, right? They have roughly 200 staffers. In fact, you know, the domain was probably worth $5 million, And they had to discount it because it came with a bunch of other Tumblr assets. <laughs> that weren't worth anything anymore. (laughs) (laughs) And and of course we should mention that it's not Yahoo selling it now. It's Verizon who bought, who bought out Yahoo. Um, I just had to mention it because I was so taken aback by it. I mean, once Yahoo bought Tumblr, the, the most I ever heard from Tumblr from that point forward was about their porn ban, which, which which really killed Tumblr. Like from that point forward, it was kind of a dead site. Right. Because that like, it was it was all of the sites that fit into that ban that made Tumblr unique. Exactly, which makes me question: like, what was he, what did Yahoo think they were buying? <laughs> yeah, it's like uh, this. This isn't just like a competitive blogging platform. Like the world has moved past what Tumblr could do. Really, the only thing Tumblr had was its community, and when the ban came in place, it just killed the community. And so now you have like an outdated substandard blogging platform. Wow. Well, rest rest in peace, Tumblr. <laughs> Actually, do you think Automatic could do something with Tumblr? I bet it could revive it, but I I don't know. Like just another hosted WordPress. Yeah, I mean, at three million, they don't really have to get much out of it. It's, it's not. It's not. It's not like it's ever going to be a one point one billion dollar company again. No, but I suppose you could put a lot of advertising on that many Tumblr pages. Yeah. I mean, there's still a lot of them. But anyways, rest in peace, Tumblr. I had to bring it up. All right. On to the main event of today. We're going to be giving some advice to people new to the software industry. Some, some like lessons learned, some things that like we wish we had known ourselves when we were first starting. Um, just kind of like our quick tips and tricks. If you're first, if you're starting to break into things right now, right? Yes, sir. All right. So let's start at the beginning. Let's start. Like with a quick maybe recap of what we did a few episodes ago with like getting your first job, like interviewing, what do you expect going into that 
that interview? So for everyone, it's going to be different, right? About what they expect from the interview and even the job, because it sort of depends on where you, where you are in life, I think was a theme that came out of that and what your past experience was. Um, if you are getting ready for an interview, say, um, and you're fresh out of school, someone like me would be hungry and desperate, but in a good way to do well at the interview, study before the interview, study before uh, to see what the company does, um, knowing what, trying to figure out what technology they use, see if they have an open source community that you can join and maybe contribute something to. Um, showing up, not looking like a scrub is a good idea. Um, but those are my sort of immediate ideas for what to expect in that first interview. Um, I, I haven't had that first interview in probably... 15 years, not the fresh out of the industry interview. Um, and the internet's changed a lot since then. Um, it's much more competitive. Um, people are expected to know a lot more out of school, I would say. But over- and there's a lot more like niches, like, right. Just because you understand like your JavaScript stack doesn't necessarily mean you're going to fully understand the, the subset of tools that they use. And so like, you can look, you can come off kind of looking like you don't know anything, even though you really do. If you just like, I know how everything works in the React Go blah 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 less stack. But oh, they use the Angular Webpack TypeScript whatever stack, and if you, you just don't don't know it, and it works, it works the other way where you might find that you're too dependent on those tools. And not know the, I guess, the basics of the language, so to speak, to be right. to be able to move around. So, yeah, you could be like a really adept like React developer, and then you and then you roll in, and they're like, "All right, tell me, let's manipulate this with native JavaScript. Let's loop over this. Let's talk about a prototype. Let's let's do basic, uh, you know, platform uh, JavaScript things." And you might have never done those sort of things if you're too reliant on on the frameworks. Absolutely. I gave a lot of interviews during the f- framework boom days, and I'd ask someone how to get child nodes of a given node, and they would s- recite a jQuery answer. Yeah. And and that would put them off because you're a MooTools guy. Well, obviously, that was the biggest <laughs> issue. But yeah, no, if, you they, know, if they like, told you how to do it in MooTools, it would have been all good, right? <laughs> well, actually, yes, because we use native <laughs> JavaScript. So. Anyways, um, but, but that is a real concern. So I think that one thing that that people should know going into an interview is that they're applying somewhere that they think is on their level. It's always good to be ambitious, right? But if you don't have a lot of experience, you know, trying to interview at Facebook might not be the best place to start. So so sort of knowing where you think you can find yourself and being realistic with yourself is really important. Now I heard a great piece of advice recently on um, on getting on going into that first interview, and a lot of people are all worried about: Are you, am I going to be tested? Are they going to give me like a coding test? Am I going to have to like whiteboard something out in front of other developers? And one way to kind of like sidestep that is to just be kind of aggressive about it. Um, I heard this advice from from my friend Jennifer Wadella uh, last week, and she's like. Find out what stack, what basic technologies this company uses and build something yourself. Like build like a fun little like website and throw it out on your open source GitHub using their stuff. And then the first question, like right off the bat in the interview, 
find a way to talk about the project you already built. Because then you can speak intelligently, you can talk about it, like try and basically take over the interview process to talk about the site you've already built. And I think that that's like a great way to like kind of control the situation, demonstrate your knowledge and demonstrate like leadership because you are trying to like get to the point and not letting them bring you around. I think that is excellent advice. And I can speak to that because for my first interview, um, to get my first job in the industry, I had brought in a project that I created myself to teach myself PHP. I created my own like IMDB, yep. David Walsh DB. Of all, the, if, of, of all, all the, the David Walsh things that have happened. <laughs> no, of all the movies that I owned, right? And I legit used that project to teach myself PHP and MySQL. And so somehow that worked in my favor because if I looked at it now, the code would probably be terrible. But I can attest to bringing in a project like that, although I did it on a thumb drive. Obviously, GitHub wasn't around. Um, doing something like that, does put you in the driver's seat, doesn't it? Because you have something that you can show them. And in my opinion, I don't know anybody who likes giving a white, giving the whiteboard interview because it's awkward and difficult for everybody. There's nobody who doesn't need to look up basic stuff on Google all the time um, to remind themselves of things. So putting someone on the spot, especially with like a a coding practice to me is, is just not good for anybody. Yeah, but a, re- a real project is something you can both look at and discuss. But let's say let's say that you get past all that and you get an offer, or or they start asking you like, "Hey, so what kind of like expectations for compensation you're getting? Do you have any like how would you negotiate? Like, w- would you just take the offer and run, or 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 what what kind of advice would you would you offer? My advice there again is 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 like a lifestyle thing. Um, the, the negotiation that I would go through as a college, at, just out of college, as I did, is different than what I would now, um, having a family, right? And expecting certain amount of PTO and insurance and stuff. If I was fresh out of school, I would look for the basics, right? I would look for retirement, insurance, uh, a wage that lets me live comfortably in the short term. Um, and I would also ask up front how can I, within six months, improve my salary? I think that, imp- that question is really important because it, it shows the person who's offering something to you that you're going to work really hard. And even if that motivation is money, you're gonna, they're going to get their money out of you that first six months with that type of attitude. Mm-hmm. How about yourself? Um. It's very contextual about like what you're going to do. Like I like the focusing on the basics, like benefits, like foosball tables and free lunch and stuff like that aren't actually like really worth that much. And you mean mean not everybody has their own cafeteria. Usually it's kind of gimmicky and like, you're not actually going to get out of it what you think you're going to get out of it. Um, As far as like, actual dollar negotiation this might be like less relevant for your very first job your very first job in tech but for all other jobs never tell them how much you're making before it's none of their business and it sets you at a bar that like oh oh he was only making you know x before we really only have to offer x plus 15 percent and that's as high as we need to go even if they'd be willing to go far higher so like 
don't limit yourself. It's really none of their business. They have no right to know it. And, and it gives them a card in the negotiations. It gives them a real big card. It gives them a trump card in the do- negotiations. Yeah, yeah. So just, just don't tell interviewers how much you make now. Tell them how much you want, not how much you make now. Because you can, like, it is ridiculous the uh, amount of, of uh, variability in the pay scales at different tech jobs. Like, you can find a tech, two tech jobs that are almost identical at two different companies in the same city, and one will pay you 50000 and the other will pay you 90000 And there's really nothing different about them, other than they are different. Like, one company negotiated somebody really low, and the other one paid a little bit closer to market rate. So, so you owe yourself to, you know, hold on to it and, uh, and negotiate. And I think there are also sites out there that will give you a baseline number to work from. Yeah, I think, I think so. Uh, every market's different. Every city's different. It depends on your cost of living and the company and, and stuff, stuff like that. Like, uh, you know, a job in the Valley is going to be very different than a job in like Iowa or a job in Minneapolis or a job in Chicago or whatever. Um, it's going to be very contextual to the market and and where you are. But know that there's lots of variability and uh, and negotiation is well worth your time. Okay, so let's say you've negotiated and you've got the job. Yes. How, yes, we got it. Celebrate. And then and then first day, and you roll in there and you got to figure out how to how to work and how to adjust and how to be part of this team that you've just joined. What? What are your thoughts on that? You're going to want to fit into the culture as quickly as possible. And I think that you need to find a place where you believe in that culture. That way it's easy. If I were to go to a place that was super stuffy, I wouldn't do well. I don't think I'd fit in very well because that's not my general attitude. Um, but there, there's going to be a little bit of culture shock as well, no matter where you've come from. Um, Especially I, if you're just rolling out of school. But that can be a good thing and a bad thing, right? Because you don't necessarily know better. Yeah. Is that fair to say? I would, um, I would and I'm not saying that people are naive, but it's like you don't, you maybe don't have much more of a frame of reference, right? Yeah. Cool. Um, and for me, that culture shock is always tends to be sort of baptism by fire, right? Like I thrive under baptism, baptism by fire. I jump right into the deep end. How about yourself? Is that well, what? What do you mean by that? What do you mean baptism by fire? I want to land code the first day. I just want to Ooh. jump. I just want to <laughs> jump in, man. I just want to get in there. I want to try and start solving problems right away. Um, I don't want people having to explain apps or bugs or stuff like that to me. I learn a lot better by code. How about yourself? Are you sort of that that baptism by fire guy? Um, probably not in the, in the same way. Like I'm usually not as optimistic to try and, and land code the first day. Uh, it'd be great, but usually there's just you know corporate BS that prevents that from happening. Um, <laughs> HR. Yeah, yeah. Getting getting going and hitting it hard when you first start, I do think is important to like getting both yourself and your relationship with this new company off on the right foot by showing that you're like willing to 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 work hard, you're smart, you're dedicated, and you're 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 establishing a reputation with them to know what's going on. 
Um, and I think that's really important. What that is, I think is, is again, contextually sensitive. If you're coming in as like a staff programmer and like your job is going to be like pulling tickets and stuff like that, that could be about like, how can you get to code as fast as possible? Um, if you're going to be like, you know, working with a collaborative team, like maybe it's about like pair programming with somebody else or mob programming with a team to try and like understand the overall architecture. But definitely whatever that role is that you're landing into, uh, trying to hit it hard for at least that first, you know, three to five weeks, I think can do nothing but, but help. You know, it really establishes a really good reputation. I've not heard of mob programming before. Like, do you get kneecapped if you make a mistake? What? No, no. Like, <laughs> like uh, uh, mob programming, the idea behind it is just like pair, except if you add a third or a fourth or a fifth person, okay. now it's now it's a mob, right? And it's not useful like all the time, right? Like I personally think that pair programming isn't useful all the time. I think pair programming is useful when you're like solving something new, like a new kind of path through your code base and you want to like get multiple perspectives and drive through it. And mob programming is probably even less uh, widely needed, but there's a handful of times like when you're first establishing an architecture, like you are laying down a greenfield system and you are building the first thousand lines of code in a team of five, let's say. Maybe five of you should mob program the first thousand lines of code together and just sit around a conference table and like, all right, what are we going to use? Oh, we're putting in this preprocessor. Oh, all right, here's here's what the hint index page looks like. Oh, here's like the, the, the very high level basic structure. Um, works well, like it, it's a good way to get off on the same page. Same way with like training. If you're coming in as like the the this more senior person with a group of of uh, with a team, it's useful to, as like a training mechanism to mob program together. I really like that. Um, when you first started mentioning it, I thought that mob programming might be overwhelming to a new person um, because there's so maybe there's so many people talking. There's so many ideas for which you don't have the context of. Yeah. But, but it's also really nice that it embeds you with the team. You can feel free to share your ideas and you're not isolated to try and do things on your own right away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really cool. That's a good idea. Um, so what other ideas as far as adjusting to the culture? Any, any other tips? Uh, you made a really good point that within the first three to five weeks, you should really try and bomb in there, work hard, make things happen. Um, for me, part of that means working late. And I think that even if it's a case where you aren't getting paid overtime, like if you're a salaried position, I think it sets a marker that you're willing to go the distance for the project, for your team. And I think that management really, really notices that, hey, I've got somebody who's in there who right away is willing to work late and make things happen. I think that's really, it sets a really good marker for people. I think that's really important. Of course, I don't. You shouldn't work yourself to death right away. Um, and of course, if you have other responsibilities, you have to be there. Um, but uh, how were you at working late at first? Um, again, I think it's important at the beginning, not like super late. Like I'm not talking about working like 12 hour days, but like you know, being there, you know, a little bit early and a little bit late for that first you know, three to five weeks, I think is really important. But um, I don't know if we're on the same page, because I think working late habitually 
is actually a huge red flag. And I would not work for a company that would insist upon that. Um, just in the, because just in the beginning, I would say just in the beginning. And then if after those first three to five weeks, when you feel like you have a reputation at that company, if you feel like you need to work more than what's expected, be that like a 40 hour week or whatever, if you feel like you need to be there more, um, I would say that's a big red flag because, um, because hours per day, I don't think is actually a good measure of programmer capability, right? Like I usually deliver the majority of the value that I'm going to get out of a programming day within five hours. Sure. And then after that, sometimes I deliver a little bit more. Sometimes it's neutral. Like I I don't get anything substantial done. And other times I actually damage the overall thing. Like I, I burnt out and I like am throwing code that, you know, is going to get rolled back or it's going to get cause bugs or something like that. And so like when you push yourself too hard, I think it can be kind of damaging sometimes, both professionally and, and personally. And so I don't like, um, I don't, I don't like having those hours forced on, on you, like that you feel obligated to be there longer than, than, than a normal working day in your culture. I agree. I agree. That's good. And speaking of damage limitation, if you're new to the industry, you're also going to have to forgive yourself (laughs) for making mistakes because you're going to make a lot of them. Um, And and every, everybody does. I've gone to places where uh, you start by, by everybody sharing like their biggest fails of like deleting production databases and taking down, you know, airports and whatever. Like it's, they're just, smoking, has done they're just smoking out what you shouldn't be responsible for. <laughs> <laughs> but no, like you're, you're going to make a lot of mistakes. And if you're like, if you're someone like me and you like take them hard and take things personally, every, you have to know that everyone sort of expects you to make mistakes up front, especially just out of school. Right. Yeah. Um, but that's anybody that walks in, into your, into your organization. Um, and on, on the flip side of making mistakes, you need to, to be proud and like talk about when you're doing things well. Like when you come in and you you cranked out a feature or you've solved a, a bug or you've like done something, like in in the status meeting or the daily stand-up or whatever your team has, be sure to talk about the stuff that you're doing and celebrate when you're like, hey, I finally like understand how that service works. And they're like, oh, it took me six months to figure out how that works. Um be sure to talk about it. Like don't just close up and, and do your own thing. Like talk about what you're doing with your team because they don't necessarily know what you're doing all the time. If you don't share. Yeah, I agree with that. Being able to acknowledge when you're doing well is really important. Um, I've been, I've been places where, um, you know, major accomplishments sometimes get treated as just another day. And that's not, for me, a good work environment. You need to be able to say, I own today. This project's awesome, and I'm going to keep doing it. So celebrating is super important. So so let's, in our, in our fictional story here, we have the job. We've crushed it for the first three to five weeks. We have a good reputation. And, and now what? Like, we're sliding into the routine of the job. Like what, what is a good routine for you? Like what, 
What does your day-to-day look like after you have normalized in this job? That is a really good question. Um, For me, it was getting to work on time. Not You should do that. Um, Getting to work. (laughs) You should show up. Right. You should definitely go. (laughs) Um, I always try to get there at the same time so people knew that they could count on me to be there at a given time. And I think that's good, especially if you have – clients who, who need things from you. Um, obviously dressing professionally isn't something that we should need to say, but that sort of thing is important. Um, it's important not to let yourself get, I don't want to say lazy in the way that you present yourself, but once you've been somewhere for a long time, you can get, I guess, overly comfortable. Yeah. But it's contextual again, right? Because dressing well, presenting yourself well, doesn't mean the same thing. Like it depends on the company you're in and the culture that they are. It's just about like, you know, coming in and trying and looking like you're trying every day. And that could still mean that you're wearing a t-shirt and jeans or that you have like a bunch of cool nose rings and a tattoo that that's all totally cool. Just look like you're trying um, and look like you belong there and you want to be there and you're excited to be there. Yeah, having a good attitude and, and maintaining a good attitude. And if you feel um, your attitude sliding, talking to people about it. I think communication is really one of the things that once you get into that routine is going to, I guess, make or break you long term. Yeah. If you're somebody who's willing to talk about problems to, um, I don't like using the word confront, but if you need to confront a manager or someone about how this project's going about the way you've been treated about something communication is key. If you let things fester, you're going to get really bitter about your job to the point where you might not be able to pull that back. Yeah. So communication in that time um, is really key. What do you think about that, about that, that uh, honey honeymoon period being over and keeping things rolling yeah. along? Yeah, so you need to like get in. I, I like your your comments. You need to come in. You need care, and you need you should you know establish like your normal working hours. Like coming in at the same time, taking lunch at about the same time, like being gone, like taking off for the day at the same time, spending time like away from your desk and like getting getting away from your problems. I think is is important just for like clearing your headspace um, and not like just throwing yourself in like being in the same place all the time. Um. And then, and then knowing, knowing when you need to like do other things, like when do you need to talk to people? When do you need, uh, when do you need to like engage with an architect or talk to a manager or talk with your peers or talk with ops or security or whomever, um, getting into those things about where, you know, who needs to be informed of what kind of things I think is a, is a really important skill, especially on a distributed team. Yeah, so I work yeah. with a lot of a lot of Europeans, and so when I leave at the end of the day, I make sure that I send them all of my questions or communications so that they have it for themselves in the morning. And by the time I get in the next day, they have answers for me, and you know the, you can keep pushing the project forward. Yeah, yeah. Now sometimes it needs to go beyond an email, though. Sometimes you need to like summon a group of people together for a meeting, right? Sure. And like, how do you, like some, some cultures like have way too many meetings. Like you've gone into some businesses and it's like, oh, I have like 
six hours of meetings a day. Like, how do I actually get anything done? Right. Um, knowing when to go to a meeting and how to hold a meeting, I think are like really important pieces of productivity for not only yourself, but for the, the team and the company that you're in. And so like, I have some specific ideas on how to run a meeting. Um, David, do you, do you start from, like, you're, you're all remote. Are there still like formal meetings? Yeah, I have them all the time. Uh, video meetings were on, you know, Slack, but that doesn't really count. But one of the nice things that my team does at Mozilla is that we'll jump on a call for three minutes to talk something out really quick. Uh, meetings don't have to be super formal. They don't need to um, pull in a bunch of people. But I think before you start a meeting, a meeting you need to have a clear reason and a clear desired outcome. Yeah. Otherwise, real- people people are going to get really upset about the amount of meetings. Yeah. So big meetings or small meetings, I think that's actually a really important thing. It's like have a specific thing. Like here's a question I need to answer, and here's what I need to like come away from this meeting with. And I've I've gone to so many meetings where like that bar has not been met. It's like, oh, we're here to talk about the new fulfillment service and what it should look like. And like, that doesn't tell me like, what are we deciding? Are we deciding technology? Are we deciding API? Like why, why are we doing this? And then having that relevant like background material ready so that the people who you pull together can make that decision. And then probably only having the people you need to be there. Like just because you're building something that kind of impacts 12 people doesn't mean you need to include all 12 people like have a conversation with like the core decision. Like if you can't make the decision on your own, then you should have that meeting with the people who can make the decision and only those people don't bring everybody in and waste everybody's time for every little thing. Yeah. There's a lot of people who see meetings as a worst case scenario sort of situation. And if that's the case, you need to have the, the clear idea and the clear outcome, but you also need to be prepared. Otherwise, people are going to feel like you're wasting their time and you won't look very professional. Yeah, absolutely. So continuing on in our story, we've had our routine. We've done our thing for a while. It's been a good run. When do you know that it's time to go? When do you know that's like, all right, you've gotten everything out of this job that you need to. It's time to, it's time to go look for that next thing. It's time to move on. I think it's when you're, when you notice your attitude and your enthusiasm start to slip, I think is, is, is what I learned. Um, in that first job that I had, it was really cool for the first two years. Um, by the third year, I was sort of getting frustrated with some of the responsibilities that had been put on me, uh, namely like taking calls from clients because I'm a software engineer and I can't code and talk at the same time. Um, and I would say I did it wrong because the last two years, I just didn't want to be there. That like that was my attitude. I would go home. I would only get a half hour lunch and I'd live 10 minutes away and I would drive home for lunch. Like it, it just, I didn't want to be there. So I think that you need to be honest with yourself and say, this isn't what I want. And then communicate that upward. If you feel it starts to slip, it might just mean you need to talk to your manager or your, your employer and say, listen. I'm not really enjoying this. Here's how I think that we can make it better. Because no, no, if a business doesn't want you, they'll get rid of you, right? And so if a business isn't willing to, or hasn't let you go, it probably means they want you there. 
and they want to try and keep you happy because that keeps the ball rolling for everything else. Um, and so I guess that that's my, my best advice. I've done it wrong once and I've done it right once. How about yourself? Um, how did you, how did you know it was time to go from your first job? I spent way too long at my first job. Like I was at my first job for seven years and, uh, and, and I, I was not excited about it at the end. Um, I was doing the absolute minimum I could get away with um, because I just didn't want to be there. And, and one of the things that, uh, that I ran into is I started to feel like I was the smartest guy in the room. Like that, that I knew how the system worked better than anybody else. And, and I did because I'd been there like the longest. And like there were things that like only Todd could do or, or not that only I could do, but nobody else was willing to learn it. And, and it just be, kind of became like my default. And then I would look around the team that I was a part of, and I didn't know that I had a whole lot to learn from anybody around me anymore. Like I felt like I had extracted all of the lessons that I could in, the, in my time there. Um, and I think that's a really good sign that you need to move on. When you look around at, at the people you're working with, and the things that you're working on, and you don't know that you have anything substantial to learn there anymore, I think it's time to move on. I think you should go and find somewhere new where you're going to be challenged and there's, a, there's new people that you can learn from. Um, but knowing yourself, like trying to like put aside either, either arrogance on one side or, or imposter syndrome on the other side, and really knowing where you are. Like, do you feel like you're the smartest in the room because you're an arrogant asshole <laughs> or are you really the smartest person in the room? And like, look back on the last couple of weeks there. Has there been any like really great interactions that you've had? Has there been, has there been things that like you thought were really novel or lessons that you've taken to heart? And if you continually say no, then maybe it's time, maybe it's time to move on and, and go find that next challenge in your life. Yeah. I agree with that completely. Um, like you, as I mentioned, I spend too many years there. And I think part, part of it was imposter syndrome. A big part of it was. Um, the other part of it being, you know, you and I are in the Midwest. And at that time, like, Web wasn't a huge Midwest business, right? Um, but lastly, I think I always had a romantic notion that you, like, you work for some place for, like, like your parents did. For 30 years, you get the watch. You get the, the cigar. Um, and I, I don't know if that's a Midwest attitude, but the coding, I shouldn't say the coding industry, the tech industry isn't like that anymore. You sort of get the impression that a lot of people new to tech would think that you stay at a place for one or two years, then move on to this other fun startup project. And then this other thing, um, for me, I didn't feel that way. Um, and I've been at Mozilla seven years now, right. And I'm super happy and excited to be here. So I do think that that your advice about not wanting to be the smartest person in the room is really important. Um, it also shows ambition, right? Like you want to keep learning. You want to learn more. You're not there to camp out and wait for retirement, right? And just collect mm -hmm. your check. I think that's really good advice. That's really awesome advice, Todd. At, at my first employer, they had a great big plaque in the, in the main hallway of what they called the Quarter Century Club. And it was all of the people at the company who had been there 25 years or longer. And it was a lot of people. Like the company, like, you know, really like ha had this whole thing where they said that we, we want like lifetime employees and stuff like that. And 
And it was really easy to buy into it. It was a good story. Right up until hard times came. And then there were layoffs. And then and then it's like, you know what? Companies aren't on your side, regardless right. of what they say. They are not on your side. It's this isn't this isn't a utopia. This is capitalism. And the company will keep you as long as you are valuable to them. They're, and they don't like you as a like a company, it doesn't hate you. It's not evil. It's amoral. It is trying to maximize shareholder value. And and you should just accept that as a person. Like stay there as long as you're getting something out of it. And have and and you shouldn't have loyalty to a company. Company loyalty is a thing that companies made up so that they don't have to pay people as much. Just get stay somewhere as long as you're getting something out of it. And then when you're not getting something out of it, go somewhere else that you'll get something out of it. Because that's how the system is set up to work. And if you're not doing that, I think you're you're putting risk at yourself that you are stagnating, that you are that you are becoming a quarter century club member at your company, but you don't really have 25 years of experience. You have the same two years of experience 12 times. You just broke some hearts with that. Don't go back to that company. I hope they don't hear this. But no, you're absolutely right. I mean, there are a lot of people that I know who stayed in a job years too long because, well, I like working with this person or this person's really nice to me. It's like you can hang out after work when you get that yeah, new job, so, right? So, like you need so to look friends, out for yourself. Don't get happy hour once a month afterwards or stay friends with them, but you can move on. Absolutely. I agree. All right. Well, so we've been going for a while. Let's do some last minute advice. So stuff that we didn't cover, like what sort of things that didn't fit into our little story here, would you, would you tell to somebody just getting into our industry or just starting their career that they should, they should keep an eye on? One thing that I'm much smarter about now and wish I was smarter about back then was money. And a lot of the younger people um, that I've spoken to in the industry, when I ask about, hey, like what benefits – what benefits do you get? Because asking about benefits is asking a lot more about more than uh, asking their salary. That's a bit rude, but you can always talk about benefits, right? And they'll be like, Hey, I got my retirement set up, which is baller. That's really good. But they don't know anything about it. Yeah. What fund they're in. Uh, if they're putting in the minimum each week, how much is your employer matching money? I promise you will be a lot more important to you in coming years so it's really important that you get off to a good start. So knowing where your money is going, I think, is really important. Um, Tips for that four hundred one k, like what? So, so setting that up, you mentioned that specifically. What should they? What should people do? I don't want to give financial. Oh, we, we are we are we are not financial advice. Right, right, right. I don't want to give advice. people financial <laughs> advice, but I do think that people need to do their own. I guess do their own research and figure out how aggressive they want to be. Um, how conservative they want to be with their money, but at least know where you are, yeah. which which index or which stocks, whatever. I think that's really important. Um, the other big thing for me, take your PTO. I need to listen to my own advice because I never take my PTO. Um, but don't don't get yourself worked to death. Don't feel like you can't take vacation. Um, at a lot of places, of course, like if you don't use it, you lose it. So. Take your vacation, stay mentally and physically fresh, and you'll be a lot happier person. Oh, that 
coming back around to the being somewhere for 25 years in your watch story, you know, you also hear the stories, my dad didn't miss a day of work in 30 years. Take your PTO, get your head right. You'll be much happier for it. How about you? What are, what are your sort of quick tips? Uh, um, money, I think, is, again, very important. Don't leave money on the table. Like if there is an employer match with your retirement, make sure that you are capitalizing on all of that employer match. If there are benefits around life insurance and health insurance and, and disability insurance, you should totally like capitalize on those and take those. Over the first like five years or so of your career, five, 10 years of your career, you're going to see a lot of like step ups in your pay, or you should if you're like making the right moves. And then as your pay increases, as you like get a 3% bump, a 5% bump, a 10% bump as you move around, like it's going to be really tempting to just increase your lifestyle spend, like tick for tick, like all the way up. And then you never feel like you have more money. You have a nicer car, you have a bigger house, you have more stuff but you don't feel like you have more money. And and that can be really hard, especially if you're like paying off student loans or maybe you have some debt problems that you are like trying to get out from under. And so at least some of the times as your pay ticks up, try and hold your lifestyle right where it is because it's going to let you accumulate some cash to save for retirement, to save for the rainy day, to pay off your student loans, to do that sort of thing. If you can just try and keep your lifestyle right where it was at when you were making X, so that when you're making X plus 10%, now you have just 10% more that you can like throw at your savings throughout your retirement. Um, on the PTO side, on the personal side, be sure like you're building your personal life up as you're building your professional one. So develop your hobbies, do your hobbies, take your PTO, go on the vacation, see the places you want to see, and don't neglect the other relationships in your life because you're trying to build your professional career. Like just, um, it's your, it's your life. Build your life. Don't build your job. Make, make sure you understand what part of your life your job should, uh, should hold for you. Very cool. And the last really quick tip I'm going to give is ask for help. Don't let yourself get stuck on things and let it affect your attitude because that's really going to make work hard to go to every day. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So we told the whole story. We gave a lot of advice. What what is your core takeaway? What is the one thing you want to leave our listeners with today, David? One thing that you had mentioned that I hadn't thought of in a long time was that the company isn't your friend. And that's not to say that they're, they're bad, but no one's ever going to look out for you more than you're going to look out for yourself. And no one relies on you looking after them more than yourself. So regardless of whether you like the people at your work, um, or whether you're willing to put up with something for less pay, you need to advocate for yourself. You need to be your own best friend and you need to not let your self-worth revolve around what the company thinks you're worth. How about yourself? Um, I want to reiterate something we told at the beginning around that baptism by fire and like killing it early when you jump into a new job. I think it sets the whole tone for a relationship with a new job. Um, to just spend that first three to five weeks. You don't have to do it forever, but just just give it your all for that short burst at the beginning to learn what you need to learn, establish yourself as an influencer, and, and really show everybody that you're here to like make good things happen. And then and then like it gives you so many more options for how that relationship will develop after that time. 
I think that's a really important note that, that not a lot of people do. Awesome. All right. Well, this was our show. Uh, it'll be online. Well, if you're listening to it, it's already been online. So that's <laughs> kind of a dumb thing for me to say. Um, if you have comments, questions, show ideas, uh, guest ideas, please let us know. Shoot us a link on Twitter. Uh, we're at Script and Style. Or me personally, I'm at Todd H. Gardner. I'm at David Walsh Blog. Adios. Thanks so much for joining us. Script and Style Show is recorded and produced by David Walsh and Todd Gardner. We'll see you next time on Script and Style.